Good morning. Good morning. In less than an hour, aircraft from here will join others from around the world, and you will be launching the largest aerial battle in the history of mankind. Mankind, that word should have a new meaning for us all today. We can't be consumed by our petty differences anymore. We will be united in our common interests. Perhaps it's fate that today is the 4th of July, and you will once again be fighting for our freedom, not from tyranny, oppression, or persecution, but from annihilation. We're fighting for our lives. We're fighting for our right to live, to exist. And should we win today, the 4th of July will no longer be known as an American holiday, but at the day when the world declared in one voice, we will not go quietly into the night. We will not vanish without a fight. We're gonna live on. We're going to survive. Today, we celebrate our Independence Day. Oh man, I'm inspired. Maybe not to go fight the aliens, but I do feel like getting that grill going. I'm Alan Brown coming to you from the editing room. The team is taking a break today, so we've lined up a movie recommendation, a compilation of the Manson family murder story, and last but not least, we have a special musical guest that's going to help us close out the show. Here's Winston with the movie of the week. Fourth of July. Well, I knew we had to do something special for today. And for that, we needed the most patriotic and inspiring movie in the history of cinema. Is it born on the 4th of July? The Patriot? Glory? Saving Private Ryan? All excellent choices. But in the end, there could be only one greatest patriotic movie of all time. That's right. 1996's Independence Day. Let's not act like we don't all love it. It's a classic action romp. This movie, along with the following year's Men in Black, is part of what launched Will Smith into megastardom. He'd already made a name for himself with his music career and the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air on television, and Bad Boys had put him on the map as a movie star, but it was Independence Day that took him to a whole nother level. This movie made him such a huge star, not even clunkers like Wild Wild West, Bagger Vance, or even Jaden's acting career could derail his star. Heck, it took slapping the shit out of Chris Rock 25 years later to finally hurt his career. But up until then, he built up so much goodwill from audiences that when it turned out he wasn't returning for the Independence Day sequel, most people immediately dismissed it. I know I did. And along with Will Smith, though, we also have another charming performance from the wonderfully charismatic Jeff Goldblum. Goldblum did return for Independence Day sequel, but we won't hold that against him. As David Levinson, Goldblum is funny, smart, and both a great contrast and great compliment to Will Smith's brash and brave Captain Stephen Hiller. He's full of one-liners and really sells the exposition. Seriously, the man brings up chess and has audiences riveted to the edge of their seats. Coupled together with The Fly and Jurassic Park, Independence Day completes the essential Jeff Goldblum trilogy. But of course, the most patriotic award must go to Bill Pullman's President Thomas Whitmore with his Today We Celebrate Our Independence Day speech. It's cheesy, played unironically straight, and absolutely fits right in with the entire tone of the movie. It'll bring a tear to any American's eye. 
On the revised Congo scale, with 10 Congos being a perfect score, this movie gets 9 red, white, and blue Congos. The only thing holding it back is the lack of a monkey. I think adding in a scene where they test pilot the alien spaceship with a chimp would have bumped the movie to a perfect score. But a 9 is still pretty damn good. Ladies and gentlemen, go watch Independence Day this 4th of July. Damn good movie. If you want to watch that, it's included in your Amazon Prime subscription as of this recording. Now, for the true crime fans out there, we have put together all three parts of Mrs. Smith's series on the Manson family. Let's take a listen. In today's story, we continue on our time-traveling journey to the 1960s, or the swinging 60s as it's commonly referred to. It was an era of social revolution, sex, and drugs. But the 1960s weren't all about peace and love. Indeed, the hippie movement was not without its dark side, exemplified by the infamous Manson family. Charles Manson was born on November 12, 1934, in Cincinnati, Ohio. Manson's upbringing was unstable and left a lot to be desired. His mother was in and out of jail, and his biological father was not in the picture. Manson first spent time in prison when he was just a teenager. He was described by probation reports as, quote, suffering from a marked degree of rejection, instability, psychic trauma, striving for status and love, end quote. While in prison, he learned how to read music and play guitar. Upon his release in 1967, he headed to California to try to make it in the hippie music scene. However, by this time, things were quite different than from what he'd known while in prison. He entered the Hyatt-Ashbury district of San Francisco, where hippies were thriving. Young adults were coming from all over to advocate peace and love. Then, LSD and other drugs were introduced to the scene. Nonetheless, Manson was quite fond of this scene and fit right in. In the haze of free love and LSD, Manson was able to create a family of his own. Manson would never let the truth get in the way of a good story, and he'd tell the story to any audience who would listen. In particular, young women tripping on acid who had identified with Manson's story of feeling lost in the world. Manson began preaching his own philosophy based on a mixture of science fiction novel called Stranger in a Strange Land, The Bible, author Del Carnegie, Scientology, and The Beatles, which quickly earned him a following. Manson had gained his first follower at UC Berkeley campus, Mary Bruner. He then met Lynette Squeaky Fromm, a runaway teen, who he convinced to live with him and Mary Bruner. Manson soon began to attract large crowds of listeners and more dedicated followers. He targeted the insecure and socially outcasted. By the end of his stay in April 1968, Manson had attracted 20 or so followers. The core members of Manson's family eventually included Charles Tex Watson, a musician and former actor, Bobby Beausoleil, a former musician and pornographic actor, Mary Bruner, Susan Atkins, Linda Kasabian, Patricia Cranwinkle, and Leslie Van Houten. August of 1968, Susan Atkins found the family a new home, an old Western movie set, which had been turned into a writing stable. Spawn Ranch was said to be fun and innocent. The family would spend time play acting movies, dressing up in costumes, and pretending every day was Halloween. Manson would tell family members that society was corrupt and that he was a noble one who knew the truth. 
Over time, he became more paranoid and his messaging became darker. It was said that at some point, Manson did not allow anyone to leave the compound without his permission. They weren't allowed to listen to any music except the Beatles, the Moody Blues, or Manson's own music, of course. Eventually, with the chaos of the riots against the Vietnam War, Manson grew to believe a race war was happening soon. In the spring of 1968, two girls that belonged to the Manson family were hitchhiking down the Sunset Strip in Los Angeles. Fresh out of a divorce, Dennis Wilson, drummer for the Beach Boys, offered to pick them up and invited them back to his place. There, the women told him about the man they were staying with, a spiritual guru named Charlie. Eventually, an unusual friendship grew between a rock and roll icon and one of history's most sadistic cult leaders. Not long after did the entire Manson family move in with Dennis Wilson. At first, Wilson did not mind. He was used to partying with all sorts of people at his home. Manson generously shared his LSD and women, all while Dennis helped him write and record music. At the time, Manson was angling for a record contract. Wilson introduced him to friends and executives from the music industry. He also pushed for Manson to be part of the Beach Boys. However, some of the members of the group refused to work with him. Manson particularly tried to impress Wilson's close friend Terry Melcher, an influential music producer at Columbia Records. Melcher was suspicious and uneasy around Manson though, and declined to work with him. However, one of the Beach Boys songs, Never Learn Not to Love, was originally a song written by Manson that the Beach Boys recorded and did not credit him on. This fueled Manson against the Hollywood industry and Terry Melcher in specific, since he knew he was the one that recrafted his song without crediting him. By the end of the summer, after blowing through an estimated $100,000 to pay for the family's food, medical bills, and damages to his property, Wilson decided he'd had enough of the Manson family. Avoiding confrontation, he moved out of his rented home with the lease set to expire, leaving his landlord to formally evict the family. After his long-awaited audition for Melcher had failed to produce the record deal he was expecting, Manson decided that it was time to ignite Helter Skelter, the race wars he warned would wipe out civilization. On August 9, 1969, shortly after midnight, hoping to jumpstart a race war, Manson ordered his followers to kill everyone at a luxurious house on Cielo Drive in Los Angeles. The family entered the home through a slit in a screen window and killed pregnant actress Sharon Tate, wife of director Roman Polanski, in one of the most gruesome and infamous murders. Terry Melcher, who was the original intended target, had luckily moved out months earlier, leaving its new resident, Sharon Tate, and a few friends as the unfortunate victims. Angered that the crimes had been too chaotic, the following day, Manson accompanied his followers to the home of a grocery company executive, Leno and Rosemary LaBianca, to personally supervise another round of deaths. At both crimes, they wrote on the wall, with blood, death to pigs, rice, and helter-skelter. Manson felt guided by his interpretation of the Beatles lyrics as it was predicting a race war that he needed to prepare for. Similar incidents had been committed before and after Sharon Tate's death, as they had planned a handful of copycat crimes. The plot was for Manson to frame Black people by having his followers leave messages and lines from the Beatles' White Album at the crime scene. In 1971, Manson and his followers were initially sentenced to death for the killings. 
However, a 1972 Supreme Court ruling abolished California's death penalty, which resulted in their sentences being commuted to life imprisonment. Manson died at age 83 in prison on November 19, 2017. A big thank you to Mrs. Smith for adding that dash of spooky with that true crime segment. We can't wait for October. You can suggest other infamous serial killers for this series by reaching out via Facebook. Now, let's shake the shivers with a short break. Good eye, mate. At Ashmore, we make beer for the everyman. And we know every day sucks. Why not try Ashmore's new beer, Chamomile Black? Enriched with melatonin, you'll erase your whole day with Ashmore. We can't undo the crime, but we can give you plausible deniability. The following commercial was written by an AI. Have you been hurt in an accidental car? Has the government sold your lungs without asking nicely? Are you mesothelioma? Answer me! If so, you can act entitled for money. I'll help. I graduated from law school, and all my teachers were bitten by dogs. I've been a lawyer for over 35 weekends, and I'm currently dating the Bill of Rights for fun. Let me use it to send your asbestos to court. I will wear two suits, and I promise to steal the judge's gavel for you. My clients never go to jail town. Remember, you don't pay any money unless you pay us money. Call for a free user phone. This next skit was ambitious for us, but it came together after we got a few donations in May that allowed us to subscribe to a music library for podcasters. Hey, this is Commander Kelso. How much time? We lost comms for a good while there on Admiral Entry, having a bit of trouble with the landing computer. Lieutenant Smith is going to take me out of control. Isn't that right, Lieutenant? Uh, yeah, just like the sim. Uh-oh. If we don't bring you back at 30, you know what happened. We read you, Commander. We'll stand by. No shit. Base, could you have IT remotely scrub my home computer? Damn it, Lieutenant, you get back home safe and scrub it yourself. That's an order. Hello? Is this the Morplex? Hello? Hello? We're trying to order a glass corp? No, hang on. Uh, honey, they're not even answering. To become a patron, check out our anchor page. Now, let me introduce you to our special guest. I'm really excited to introduce you to Swedish rock band The Fives with their debut song, A Little Me Time. Take me to, gonna leave this all behind Let me talk when we land You wouldn't understand I'ma take care of you like I always do Gonna put it on the line Don't it? 
such a shame you can't have both. Ladies and gentlemen, that's our show for today. On our next episode, we're going to have a full half hour for you where we talk about the Supreme Court, superheroes, and shitty movies we can't get enough of. Thank you for all of your support. If you like what you hear, be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast app, share us with your friends, and write us a review if you have the time. It helps more than you can imagine for a young little podcast like ours. Be a part of the conversation with us on Facebook. Send us your idea for the show or let us know what you think. You've just received the full scoop. We'll have more for you next week. 